All right, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to wrap up those conversations, find your way back to your seats, and give your ear to the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading today is from the book of Exodus. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark, put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, So he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and active, and you promise us that it does not return void wherever it goes. So, Lord, we claim those promises together this morning. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would move in our hearts, and Lord, that everything that is done here this morning would bring you nothing but glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today marks the last Sunday in our sermon series in the book of Exodus, after we've spent about the past two months or so together in it. And fittingly, this last chapter is the culmination of everything that we've read so far. It's the climax of the whole book of Exodus. And so if this is your first Sunday with us in a while, or maybe your first ever, this is a great one to jump in on, because this is, this is everything wrapped up into this one final chapter. But what I'm going to suggest this morning is it's not just a climax of the story of the Exodus, because it's actually the beginning of a whole new chapter that is about to come in the life of Israel with the Lord. And it's actually one that leaves us with a pretty big cliffhanger. And I don't know about you, I love a good cliffhanger. I, sometimes I'm surprised by them, like the, the Mission Impossible movie this year. Didn't know there were two of them, so that was a surprise. But I don't know how you feel about cliffhangers, but this is a big one. So we're going to get there in a second. But what I want you to see is that here in Exodus 40, after this long saga that we've read... You might expect it all to resolve with the people of Israel finally being freed from Egypt and then the Lord marching them straight into the promised land, which wasn't really that far away, mileage-wise. But instead, we come to the end of the book, and Israel's still in the wilderness. It's a whole year later since the Passover. It's a whole year, and they've not gone very far so far. So today, we're going to be looking at this, this chapter and see that this chapter actually asks a couple questions, and it really only answers one of them. And so those two questions that we're going to look at today are, first, is God really with us? And then secondly, if he is, can we ever be near him? So first, is God really with us? Have you ever found yourself wanting to be somewhere else, like a, a happy place that you might have? Maybe that's your home. Maybe that's your favorite vacation spot or just that special place somewhere. I'd imagine that's a, a beautiful place, but I'd also imagine that it has certain people associated with it, right? The people that you most love being around. And maybe some of you had that this past week over Thanksgiving. I hope that's the case. 
But for some of you, you may not have had that. And it was a painful reminder that that place maybe doesn't exist for you. You don't have those people. You don't feel like you have a home. Or the one that you do have isn't the one you would have asked for. So I don't know which of those two camps you may feel like you're in this morning. But what I want to suggest is that desire for a home, that desire for a special people to belong to, not only is that a really beautiful desire, but I would say it's a God-like desire. Because that's the whole story of the book of Exodus, is God desiring to be in a place with his people. From beginning to the end, the story of the whole Bible is of God working out his plan to be at home with his people, to get back what was lost so that they can be together forever. In fact, it's much more about God's desire to dwell with us than it is about our desire to be with him. Does that not seem a little backwards to you if you really stop and think about it? That he so much more desires to be with us than we ever desire to be with him. Shouldn't we be the ones that are desperate to live with him? This king of glory in a place where there's no evil or suffering or pain and it's just joy and peace forever? Doesn't that sound good? But the problem is that we're, we're prone to keep God kind of at an arm's length at best, if not further. We like to keep him at a safe distance, to kind of have him in our back pocket if we need him. Almost like he's living in a, in a little guest house in the backyard. Or even better, maybe your neighbor's guest house. He's nearby if we need him, but we don't really want him cramping our style, our life, how we want to live it. And this is what we looked at last week when Crawford looked at the passage of the golden calf, right? The Israelites were all about God's power when it delivered them from Egypt, when it saved them from the Red Sea and the pursuing Egyptian army. But as soon as they had to wait 30 days for Moses to come down from this cloud-covered mountain, they kind of moved on, right? They took matters into their own hands, and we saw what happened, right? Not very good things. But thankfully... God's plan of being reunited with his people can't be thwarted by our lack of desire or by our poor choices. And so despite Israel's unfaithfulness, and actually because of God's faithfulness, the Lord tells Moses in the next chapter, that was 32, in 33 he tells Moses, I'm going to give you what I promised I would give you. I'll still give you deliverance from your enemies. I'll give you the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. He says, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you see the, like, the tragic irony of sin here? The Israelites desperately wanted a God that they could interact with that was right there in front of them with them. So they, they took matters into their own hand, right? And in doing that, they risked losing the very thing they wanted. God really being with them. But thankfully, Moses and the Israelites see the emptiness in this offer. And they say that without God, they're just like everybody else. They're no different. And so Moses pleads with the Lord to stay with them, to forgive them for what's just happened. And he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And graciously, the Lord agrees. But I would imagine that this undoubtedly left Moses and God's people with this kind of little voice in the back of their head thinking, did we just blow it? 
did we just shoot our shot and completely miss? Is God really going to stick around? Why would he want to be with us after what we just did? Have you ever asked a question to God like that before? Many of us, I think, have these places in our hearts, in our lives, that we're, we're deeply ashamed of. Words that we've said or maybe haven't said. Things that we've done or maybe haven't done. People that we've harmed or used. Addictions that no matter how hard we try, we give in to them time and time again. Places that we've run out of hope for there ever being something good to come from them. For them ever being something that could be redeemed. And so we ask ourselves these questions, whether consciously or not. Would God really still want me if these things are true about me? He really knows who I am. Why would he want me? Because I don't even know if I want myself. Has anybody ever been there before? I know I have. But here at last in chapter 40, this this culmination passage, this climactic passage of the book of Exodus... The Lord comes. The Lord comes in all of his glory to make his home amongst his chosen people of Israel. Do you know that this word for tabernacle, it literally means home. It means home or shelter in Hebrew. God has made his home in the middle of the camp of Israel. And so here, the Lord is moving in. He's taking up his permanent residence in the midst of Israel and thus answering the question, is God really going to be with us? And I don't know if you picked up on this, but throughout the whole story of Exodus, God's presence, his glory is described as a a cloud by day and fire by night, right? And what's described here at the end, end of this passage is this cloud descending, that it descends on the tabernacle and fills it inside of it. And if you look at this last section, verses 34 and to the end of the passage, every single verse mentions this cloud. It says, the cloud that covered the tent, the cloud settled on it. Whenever the cloud was taken up, if the cloud was not taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Every single verse mentions this cloud. It's like, I just want to make sure you know what we're talking about here. That's what this is saying. It's like, the cloud is here. It's moved in. What was just a, a few weeks ago, hovering over the Mount Sinai, where they couldn't go anywhere near it, was now right next door. I I really can't stress enough how huge of a moment this is. So think about it this way. We live in this amazing place, right? There's some really impressive, successful, famous people that live in the Bay Area. So imagine just for a second that Sundar or Tim Cook or Steph Curry had just bought the house next door to you and they're moving in. That'd be pretty exciting, right? You might tell a couple people about that. You might feel a little differently about your neighborhood. How how amazing would that be? Now imagine that the God of the universe himself is the one moving in next door to you. How incredible is that? So if you don't understand the significance of this moment, if you don't understand the significance of the tabernacle, you may have actually missed the whole point of the book of Exodus. The whole point is that God has been working to deliver his people from Egypt so that they can be together, so that they will be free to worship and dwell with their God. 
So with this descending cloud of glory that these last few verses overemphasize to make sure we get this. With this descending cloud of glory, the question of is God still with us is answered with a resounding yes. Unmistakable yes. But it then leads to a different question. And that question is, can we ever actually come close to it? And this is where this kind of cliffhanger comes in. In the midst of all this good news, if you look at verse 35, you may have missed this in the first reading. But it says that Moses can't enter this, this tent. He can't enter the tabernacle. Are you surprised by that at all? This is the same guy who was just on Mount Sinai, who came down with his face glowing because he just experienced the glory of God. He's had intimate, regular conversations with God over the past few years, and he's not allowed in. And on one level, it kind of makes sense if you think about it this way. Some of you are in the, the business of home building, right? It's like if you build somebody else's house, you don't get to live in it, right? Like once you're done, you hand over the keys, and the person who owns the house moves in. Moses was just building God's home. So in one sense, it kind of makes sense. But what we really see here is God is deliberately keeping him on the outside looking in. And everybody else. Why might that be? This cloud and the fire by night, while it makes its home both on and in the tabernacle, it's actually what prevents them from being in it from drawing close to the glory of God. And because, it is because, the glory is too glorious for any of them to just be able to walk up to and experience. God's presence with his people has been heightened. It is zoned in on this one place, and it is glorious, and it is holy. And God's people aren't. That's the whole story of scripture. It's of a holy God doing all that he can to be with an unholy people. And it is such a holy place that even Moses can't enter. You know, the Hebrew word for glory is, is kavod. And it literally means weight or heaviness. You may have heard of C.S. Lewis and, and a series of essays that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. That's what is here, is the weightiness of God. And not even Moses, who's a pillar of faith and holiness as far as humans are concerned in the Bible, Not even he could go before this holy God. So through the tabernacle, God has moved in. He's moved nearby, but he's put up a number of layers of protection and separation between it and his people. And it's not for his protection. It's for theirs. I want you to to notice for a second the movement of how this passage goes in terms of the description of the tabernacle. It's a lot of details. He may have gotten lost in kind of the the murkiness of it all. But it it moves from an inside-out movement. It starts by talking about the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God himself dwells. And then it talks about the veil, the curtain that is put up around that, which separates what was called the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. And that's where you would find a table and a lampstand and a door to the outer courtyard. And only the priests were allowed inside the holy place. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement was the great high priest allowed. Just once a year. 
The courtyard was where everybody else would go to cleanse themselves and to offer sacrifices. As Nancy Guthrie puts it, there are kind of three components to the tabernacle, just like there were three components to the Garden of Eden. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, there was the very main epicenter of Eden where God's presence dwelled. And then there was the rest of the garden around that. But outside of that, I don't know if if you've ever thought about this before, there was an untamed wilderness. And that was part of Adam and Eve's job was to go and make the garden bigger, essentially. To go tame what was outside and that wasn't currently in that special place. And so just like the garden has these three kind of layers of intimacy with the Lord, The tabernacle does too. You have the Holy of Holies at the very center where God himself is. It's the earthly earthly throne room. And then one layer out from that, you have the holy place where the priests would go and do their work on behalf of God's people. But then outside of that was the furthest any other person could go. And to further kind of sink in this connection that the Lord is drawing here, if you've read, there are actually 15 chapters leading up to this moment that describe the building of the tabernacle and the intricacy of the details of all the components. And if you read it, there's imagery of the garden and of cherubims all over it. And the Lord is making a very clear connection to the garden that was lost. Because if you remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, when the fall happened, they were pushed out of the garden, right? And what separated them from what they used to have was a cherubim with a flaming sword. That was separating them from getting back in to presence with God. And so here we can see that the people of Israel, they can definitely see that God is with them. But it leaves them asking, will we ever really get back in? Are we forever going to be separated from presence with him? Will he be unreachable forever? You know, this question existed. For the next 500 years, the the people of Israel had the tabernacle. And at the end of that 500 years, this is where I'm going to get a little historical nerdy on you. So just bear with me. Hopefully it's interesting because I think it's fascinating. Um, But 500 years later, the people are finally in the promised land. And King David starts to plan the temple, but it's his son Solomon that actually is the one to build it. But not too long after that, the whole thing kind of falls apart as God's people just go off the deep end. And eventually in 586 BC, Babylon comes and they destroy the temple. And for the next 70 years, God's people are sent into exile. But after that 70 years, in this shocking turn of events, they're freed and they're sent back actually with money and resources to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But the problem with this temple, as Ezekiel tells us, is that it was hopelessly corrupt. And so when they finally finish it, unlike what happens with the tabernacle and unlike what happens with Solomon's first temple, when they consecrate it to the Lord, when they go through this this ceremony of saying, here it is, God, we're done. This is for you. The glory of the Lord does not descend. The cloud does not come. The fire does not come. Because it was hopelessly corrupt. God is saying, I'm not with you. And for the next 400 years, this is what's true of Israel. Until 
In 19 BC, none other than Herod, who was the Roman rule of Israel, he decides he wants to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. And that takes about 45 years, 10,000 workers to rebuild it. And it's into this temple that the eight-day-old baby Jesus is brought in at Christmas. Well, it wasn't technically Christmas, but what we now celebrate at Christmas. The glory of God has come back to the temple. This time, though, it's not cloud. It's not fire. It's flesh and bones. It is God himself who, for the first time in 400 years, has come home to his people. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, it means God is with us. That is Jesus' name. There's a famous passage in, in John, John chapter 1, that talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. But it also says in verse 14 that the Word becomes flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Do you know what that word for dwelt literally means? It's this word eskinosin, which literally means tabernacled. The glory of God has tabernacled among us. I think this is pretty intentional phrasing. He's not just saying that he, the glory of God has come back as it used to be. But he's saying God himself, the glory of God enfleshed among us has come. And he's saying he is the way to that glory. He is the sacrifice that we used to have to make all the time. He is the purifying waters that cleanses us. He is what allows us to be with God. And to make sure we grasp this, the the New Testament goes above and beyond to compare Jesus to the tabernacle in the temple. Jesus says in John 2, in this kind of crazy thing, uh, that he's going to destroy this temple that took 10,000 people 45 years to build. And he's going to rebuild it in three days. Like, everybody thought he was clinically insane at that point. But to make sure that we don't miss it, what John says at the end of that chapter It doesn't always come out this clearly, but he's like, just to make it clear, he says the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so Jesus is saying this building, this really is just a mere shadow of the true temple. And I am that temple. And so fast forwarding a little bit, the most powerful example of this is at the crucifixion of Jesus. Where that main barrier, that veil, that curtain we've talked about, that separated the holiest of places from an unholy people is torn from top to bottom at the death of Jesus. And I want to make another little connection with that. If you look at the end of verse 33, notice what it says right before the glory descends. It says, after Moses has done all this stuff, he finishes his work. It is finished, and the glory descends. On the cross... The moment Jesus says, it is finished, I've done the work, that curtain is torn in two. That barrier separating us from God, that threefold structure of protecting the holiness of God from an unholy people is gone. And as the book of Hebrews tells us, that curtain is actually Christ himself. He was torn so that we could have access. We could walk straight in to the throne room. So as his flesh is torn from us, 
that curtain is torn. And so now, friends, his people have unfettered and unimaginable access. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we, we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. But it doesn't stop there. As Jesus prepared to head back to heaven, as he prepared to leave this earth and his disciples, he told them that it would actually end up being better for them that he goes. Because then his presence would come and dwell in them and not just amongst them. So that's when we come to Pentecost, which is this time when the Spirit of God descends in tongues of fire. Does that ring any bells? And instead of this time dwelling on the temple, it dwells in God's people themselves. The people of God have become living, breathing, walking, talking temples. And for those of us that are in Christ this morning, you too are a part of that. You are a part of this living, breathing, moving temple. We are the tabernacle. There is no more temple building needed. No more camping. God has moved in to his people. Peter tells us in in 1 Peter 2 that you are living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. And what I want you to notice here is that he doesn't say that I'm a temple, you're a temple, we're all our own little temples. He's saying that together we are built up into the one temple, into the church. And so friends, this means that, that our community is supposed to be a place where God's glory shines. It's supposed to be beautiful. So we should always be asking ourselves, does this church... Does this community showcase the beauty of the place where God's glory itself dwells? Friends, in this world, the church is called to give witness to that glory, to the reality of the kingdom of God that has moved in. So that when they see us, they can know that there's something different. They can know that there's something eternal and powerful and glorious at work here on earth, and that there's actually something even fuller and better coming. So I want you to maybe think about it this way. I've I've played music for a lot of weddings over the years, which is a really fun thing to get to do. You get a front row seat to everything, and you also, in a sense, kind of get to kick off the wedding because the wedding starts with the prelude music, right? But nobody's there for the music. What are they there for? They're there for people that they love being joined together in love. And so the wedding doesn't really start until the bride walks in and she's hand in hand with her groom. That's what people are there for. And so too, our presence in this world should be kind of like prelude music. It should be building anticipation for the bride to be able to walk in and finally be united to her husband. And so... Friends, one day, that day is coming when Jesus, our groom, will be united to us, his bride, the church. A day when that holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down and will hear a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you know what's awesome about this new Jerusalem? 
Do you know what it doesn't have? It doesn't have a temple. It doesn't have a tabernacle. Because it says that the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. And the whole world is his dwelling place. When that happens, we will finally know and feel the presence of God. Unlike anything else. We will finally be at home like we all long to be. We will be at home with the one who loves us more than any other. And there won't be any family drama at this gathering. Aunt Susie won't be talking about whatever conspiracy theory she's buying into now. And it's going to be glorious. So friends, what I want you to see this morning is that in Jesus, this glory cloud, this pillar of fire, took on skin and bones. He slept, he ate, he wept, he died, he rose again, and he's coming again. The cliffhanger in Exodus of can we ever really be near him is answered in Jesus. And this God who dwells in our midst is now the God of open access. Not just once a year, not just through the high priest, but every moment of every day for the rest of your lives. For all who belong to him. You are invited in. And I want you to ask yourself, have you come in yet? Have you yet gone where even Moses himself was not allowed to go? If your answer to that question is no, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. He has flung that door wide open for you. He doesn't ask you to, to go through the ritual of washing yourself and sacrificing before you walk in. You don't have to do a list of all these good things before you're given an invitation. He doesn't even ask you to take your shoes off. He just says, come right in. He's already done the work. It is finished. You don't have to do this list of good deeds to make it in. He invites you to come in so that he can make you both whole and holy. And all he asks you to bring is your need and your willingness for him to move in. But rest assured, if you do come, if he does move in, he's going to go to work on you. He's going to renovate your heart. He's going to cut out those dark and broken and diseased places so that his glory can more fully fill you. And it's going to be painful. And it might be weighty. But it will be glorious. And it will be worth it. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. So friends, I'll end with this. We have something that Moses never had. Jesus has come. Emmanuel, God with us. God in us. The glory of the Lord in Jesus has already come once and he's coming again. And when he returns, that glory will come and the true celebrations will begin and never come to an end. When at last we will be married where we were made to be. We will be at home at our maker's side. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, as we begin now to look towards celebrating your coming at Christmas, as you came to us in both humility and glory, 
Lord, we thank you for the gift of your presence in our lives right now. Lord, you're not just with us, but you are in us, and we are in you. So would we ask that you would give us the strength and the desire to live in that reality today and every day hereafter until you come again. And Lord, may we even be just a small glimmer of the glory within us to a dark and watching world. We pray this all in the name of your risen and glorious son, Jesus. Amen.